0: Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How's your talk prep going? It is going. What is your talk on again? Remind me.
1: Debugging Rails itself.
0: Okay. That's where you go bundle open and then you throw a binding dot somewhere, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. No, I'm actually thinking that I'm going to make the talk like a lot more about just debugging large, messy old code bases in general. Mm-hmm. And then tie it back in and just, and trust me, Rails is no, is no different than any other large legacy code base with too many people touching it. And maybe throw, you've seen the American Chopper meme, right?
0: Yes, that is all over the place lately. I have a slide that's like, this
1: talk isn't about debugging Rails, it's about debugging general software. Rails is no different than any other piece of large legacy software. <laughs> Something like that. We'll
0: see. I wonder how many talks will have that meme in it this year. Probably a lot. Seems to be the hot meme. I finished the first draft of writing my talk, which is really, like, I consider it, like, the talk is written. Now it's a matter of, like, practicing it some and being like, oh, I don't like this at all. I need to rewrite this part or, like, whatever. And so I've been going through that the last few nights. I finished it earlier this week, last week? I don't remember exactly. But the first time I ran through it, it was 50 minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) Which isn't, isn't awful since I was, you know, I'm not planning on taking live QA, which is a change for me after our last conference bike shed recordings where we discussed this yep and so i have 40 minutes if i want to take 40 minutes but i'm aiming for like 35 yeah that seems good most of my talk come in somewhere around 30 32 so i started editing and then once i'm glad i went through that process because like i cut a whole bunch of stuff that it turns out i just didn't need even stuff that early on i had spent so much time like writing and trying to like because i'm talking about migrations right and so like Mm -hmm. I'm struggling a little bit because some of my earlier talks have had like kind of a grander theme to them. So like code review is something that like you can take home and be like, okay, I know how to get better at code review now. And even the rest talk, which I worried was stuff that people knew already. And it turns out there was a lot of people who really wanted to hear that talk. And I still hear from people who are like, I took, you know, I learned so much from it. And so I was like, okay, how do I get that into this talk? And so I spent a lot of time writing an introduction that I felt kind of like, made migrations a little more grandiose than they are <laughs> i spent a lot a lot of time on this and then i was finally like okay cool introduction's done now let me do the technical part of the whole thing which is what i mean the track i in is like how stuff works right <laughs> so like it's supposed to be a technical deep dive into these things and then once i did that and i practiced the talk a whole bunch and realized how over i was i was like i don't need any of this introduction like there's actually good stuff that i think people can take away from here that I can give them just by covering the technical parts So, like I talk about the adapter pattern it's like a thing Mm -hmm. that you can if you don't know about it here's how it works and here's where you might use it in your code and then when I get into a little bit of like I talk about schema.rb and I talk about the comments that get generated into schema.rb which I don't know if you've ever read them but they talk about how like this is the authoritative source for your database schema which no, it's not. And then they talk <laughs> and then they say like, you should run this instead of running old migrations because basically it says I forget exactly what it says, but it's basically like that will never work. <laughs> it's like, well, it could work. And so I start talking about the things that make that true, like why is schema.rb necessary in a world where we have migrations, right? And so that's stuff that people can take under their own applications into their own stuff. So I felt like there was enough there. And also like it's track appropriate. We're gonna dive into a bunch of code. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I've got it down. I very quickly got it down to about 30 minutes and I think I'm back up to somewhere around 38 right now. So, so you got some more cutting to do? Yeah, probably. And it's one of those things where I was coming to my wife where when I start practicing, I've got like the introduction is down and then like the first section or two of like, I consider this talk to have like four parts. Well, five parts if I include the quick introduction. And then there's four parts after it about different parts of migrations and schema management. Those first two are pretty solid at this point because I'll be practicing the talk and I'll get an idea. So I'll stop and I'll write it down and then I'll go back and start again from the beginning. <laughs> but like I'm not getting to the end part <laughs> when I'm practicing often enough. So I haven't polished the end just yet. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just going through my typical loop of practice, 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 practice. And I feel like I, I finished writing the talk early enough that I still have. It's a little scary because I'm going to RailsConf on Monday. But my mm-hmm. talk is not till Thursday, so I still have a lot of practice time in front of me. Sure,
1: her. yeah.
0: Unlike you, who his talk is on Tuesday
1: morning. Yep, it'll be okay. <laughs> I'm pretty confident it'll be ready and good by then. Good. We'll see. <laughs> I saw Tess give her talk for the first time yes uh, last night. Yeah, she the lo- local meetup. Yeah, how'd it go? Good. I was unaware that we hadn't put details in the meetup description until the day before, so it was not a very large turnout, but... Mm. It was good. She got a chance to get comfortable with speaking in front of an audience, and I was able to give her a lot of feedback on the talk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It'll be good. Um, she's she's been getting a lot of input from people, which I I do just find it interesting how different everybody's processes are. Like, she had a call with Sandy uh, a couple days ago, and she was telling me afterwards like you know some of the advice that Sandy was giving her. I'm just like, oh, that's I do kind of the exact opposite of that, but. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I keep meaning to write everybody has like a different way of doing it and sometimes when I read blog posts about other people's way I'm like, oh I should do it that way But like it just doesn't that way doesn't work for me I have to do it the way yeah. I'm gonna do it Which is like pretend like I'm gonna write the whole thing and then end up writing the beginning of it and throwing it away and then writing slides and going like It's just not a it's I think everybody kind of has to find their own routine. I guess yeah that works for them
1: like mine's really weird like especially when it comes to timing because I'm, I'm just given into I'm going to go on random tangents that mm-hmm. mean that my talk will be a variable length. So I just write multiple endings. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the choose your own adventure talk?
1: Pretty much. And just like if I basically just have usually three points in the talk where if I'm short on time at this slide, this is a perfectly good place to end the talk, and I have something slightly different I say on that slide if I'm planning on ending the talk or not there.
0: Interesting. I could not do that. Anything I say, well, any point I make in a talk, it's always come out of my mouth before, like in practice, right? Sure. I may have a particular turn of phrase sometimes where I'm like, ooh, that was good. Where'd that come from? Like, I didn't practice that. But for the most part, I know exactly what I'm going to say. So that's entirely different from your process.
1: (laughs) Sure. No, and I tried to do that as well. But I also kind of like having the talk be slightly different every time I give it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I guess it's also not as big of a deal anymore since I very rarely give talks more than once now Mm. since you know just not enough conferences (laughs) in the Albuquerque area no I meant well that I'm going to but yes also in the Albuquerque area
0: it would make it more likely for you to go to the talk if it were in the Albuquerque area or for you to go (laughs) to a conference yes yeah And, and and like the often suggested tact of like don't debut your talk at a large conference is a thing that I have failed to do every single time I've given a talk.
1: <laughs> it's also just like, if you don't have the ability to go to more than one or two conferences a year and you know you want to go to RubyConf or RailsConf, like, what are you sup- well, expected to do there?
0: You have local meetups, right? Oh, well, sure. But What happens is by the time I feel prepared to give a talk at a local meetup, I'm too worried that if I give the talk at a local meetup and it doesn't go well, that it'll shatter my ability to be ready for the large conference. So it's just like every time I've given a talk, the only person who has ever heard it before I've given it before I've given it at Railsconf has been my wife. And that's it.
1: <laughs> and so like she must, she must give good feedback then.
0: She gives she gives pretty good feedback. It gets like progressively like this one she listened to this one she's like this doesn't make any sense to me. Although she laughed at uh at one point I have an arrested development gif and she really appreciated that one. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and some of the jokes like I'll say the joke and like she doesn't even get that it's a joke. Because she's not a, like they're software development jokes and so then I like very quickly like people will laugh at that and then she'll like fake a laugh and then I'll continue <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Everybody has a different process I guess so it just doesn't maybe I'd be better served if I gave the talk first Because like, what happens is I go and I give the talk at RailsConf basically and then I come back and I do it at Boston RB
1: afterwards <laughs> I mean hey that, I, That's also a good thing to do right gives any everybody who didn't go to the conference a chance to see your talk live yeah. Well, by everybody, I mean the small number of people in the immediate Boston area who are <laughs> able to attend that meetup on that one night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it gives people a different up. Gives people opportunities. I've done other local meetups too. Like at one point, I traveled to Austin and gave my code review talk at a local meetup in Austin. That was fun. I would like to get more use in general out of the talks I've already done. Because for the most part, I submit them to RailsConf. They, and if it gets approved, I give it there. Then I do like a local meetup thing. And, like, occasionally I resubmit them to other conferences, but then, like, I just lose the motivation to prepare CFPs. Yeah. Even though I can pretty much usually copy and paste the one I did for RailsConf and tweak it
1: a little bit. Well, especially since so many conferences literally use the Ruby Central CFP app.
0: (laughs) I guess, yeah. Or the, what's the one that's centralized? The Paper Call? yeah. Yes, Paper Call. Yeah, Paper Call is, like, another common one. So I think I just have to, like, I was talking to Nick Means, and I was saying that... I don't feel like I got enough mileage out of the code review talk I did that like it was given at RailsConf and a couple local places but like that I could definitely do it other places but I just I don't know where to take it like I wouldn't do it at like any other Ruby related thing because it's been around those circles already and then i don't know what other circles to, to try it in right like am i gonna go to a python conference and give it there <laughs> or like I and
1: mean, there is nothing really ruby specific about it no
0: but like i don't like you know it's also trying to balance like what would my like my employer is going to pay me to do this luckily oh, sure. for me so trying to balance what they get out of it but there have been like a increase in the types of conferences that are more aimed at like code is craft or engineering leadership and like those types of things so i think we I or could just general programming those. yeah so i guess i just got to get off my butt and find it's a matter of finding i often find them like when it's like hey today's the last day to submit for our cfp and i'm like getting ready to go to bed and i see that tweet <laughs> like come by <laughs> and I'm like well that would have not been not worth good one. it yeah <laughs> oh well i'll get the next one i'll try that conference next year I guess I speak at enough conferences. I don't need to. It's become harder for me to go away and speak at conferences as my kids get older Mm because they miss me more. (laughs) So like my son, my older son who's seven now has been kind of like having a rough go of the last week or two. And my wife's pretty convinced it's because he knows I'm going away for a week, right? Right. And so he's pissed. (laughs)
1: It's like, all right, well. (laughs) Don't let me go, Murph! (laughs) So on the subject of migrations... Well, yes. loosely on the subject of migrations. So I want to get your opinion on something. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about making schema.rs like just a thing in Diesel. Not like this is an authoritative file that we use to generate your, you know, regenerate your database schema or anything like that. But we have to have all this code that represents your database schema. And we have two ways that you can auto-generate that. One is with the infer schema macro, which was around, you know, in, in, I actually don't think it was in the first version of Diesel, but it was there pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we added print schema to the CLI, which just generates basically the same code that infer schema would, but instead of you know it being a thing that happens in your code base, it just prints that to standard out. And the convention, not everybody does this, but the convention is regardless of which method you're using, the result goes in a file called schema.rs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the problem with infer schema, like we've definitely moved towards diesel print schema as the recommended way to do this. If you're using infer schema... It's really opaque what actually happens if it's doing something slightly different than you expect. It's very hard to figure out what has happened that is different, and it also requires a database connection at compile time, which can complicate your build process. That said, like I've kept that around instead of deprecating it because it's still useful for early on in a project to be able to just have this thing that you when you know when your schemas changing every 5 minutes to not have to remember every time you run migrations to also run this other command to regenerate this other file. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I've been wanting to do is figure out some better ways to allow people to customize the output slightly. Right now, the only options that we have, and these are only for print schema and first schema, can't do any of them, but the options that we have on the command line are include only these tables or exclude these tables and then if you want to load from a specific schema on postgres rather than the default schema you can specify that as well i think those are all the options Mm -hmm. but there are certain things like you know we have to figure out what the corresponding i want to say rust type but like what the name of the thing in rust that is a marker for the corresponding sql type if that makes sense So like not a Rust integer, but like a struct in Rust called integer that is only that has no data or anything. It's literally just a thing that exists so that when you see that type, oh, this represents the SQL type integer. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so we have to, you know, figure out how to given, you know, whatever the database tells us your type is, figure out how to map that to the appropriate Rust name. And we use a very, very intelligent and complicated process of capitalizing the first letter. Mm -hmm. But like the support for some of these types might come from third party crates. And mm-hmm. so you ha- you have to make sure that those get imported wherever they're they're being used. So that's and that's one of the most common ones where I just want to, you know, for example, add the ability for people to add these import lines. And then uh the other one I want to do. Well, I'll get to the last one in a minute, because the last one's a catch-all, which is the more the more interesting one. But as we add more of these configuration flags, then we start to get into this problem of okay, but if this is how you generate your schema, like they're always you're always gonna want to pass these same flags. So I guess that means it's time for us to, to have a config file.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, then, so this is the first thing I want to get your opinion on. So the, then this gets me into thinking, well, OK, if we have a config file and we just know where it's going to live, or, or you, know, you can pass us the location of the file, one of the configuration options I can have you give me for print schema is file.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you do that, what we can do is then we can just automatically rerun print schema every time you run, revert, or redo a migration,
2: mm-hmm.
1: outputting it to that file. Which means that we can then deprecate infer schema because it's now lost its reason to exist. Right. I guess the only downside is like if you're using Diesel and not Diesel CLI, mm-hmm. which is a thing you could do. But in that case, I guess, I don't know.
0: And so, what's the value in this schema.rs file if it's not used to load schema at all? It's the thing that informs the rest of your program what's avail- like what structs are available. Yes. Okay.
1: It's literally a bunch of structs that just represent your database schema. Okay. It's how, like, when you want to ever reference a table or a column in the query builder, it's these, the structs that get generated in this file are what you use. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they also have additional information attached to them that we're able to use to make sure that, you know, oh, we, we know this is a string column, so don't try and compare it with integers. Okay.
0: And so your concern is if somebody doesn't use diesel CLI and they do use infer schema, if you then deprecate infer schema, they'd have no way to inform the rest of their program. What I mean, the they just is. have to
1: write the file manually, basically, right. or use Diesel CLI.
0: Right. I think that's okay. Yeah. I don't know. Seems. Okay I guess to it's me.
1: also just even though there's so much precedent for this in Rails, like I'm I'm I feel kind of weird about running this completely separate command automatically every time you do migration related stuff
0: hmm but why would it have to be completely separate like when i run rake db migrate and it generates me my schema.rb file i don't s- yeah i I could just run rake db schema dump i think is what it is yes, right that is i bad. could just do that manually but i don't see that as like two separate processes it just it's what happens when you generate migrations you get this schema.rb file
1: right i mean it's a little different here because we don't require the file to exist nor do we like Specifically care that's in some given location, right? Schema.rb is never actually read by rails Normally, the only time Schema.rb is ever used is for other rake tasks
0: It's only ever really used for schema load, right? I mean, yep And then like I make the point in my talk that like it's chief use to me anyway is as a reference (laughs) Like like when I I have shortcuts in Vim when I'm sitting in a model I hit colon R and it takes me to the schema.rb file where I can see like what's indexed on this model or or whatever, right? And that's its chief use to me. It's a lot of work to generate something that its chief use is as a reference. But
1: yeah, I mean, yeah. this at least not for things like indexes. Like, this does not track in, any information about indexes, default values.
0: Right. It doesn't have a reason to in
1: your right. Because for code. us, it's like that's that's database level stuff. Yep. We just interact with it, but we don't. The only reason Rails even cares about the default is, well, number one, so that it can regenerate, and then number two, because sometimes we'll just give you that default value Ruby side.
0: Yeah, on new, not sometimes, all the time, right?
1: No, not if it's a default value that actually requires hitting the database. Can you specify a default value like that? Yeah, you can specify any function. Oh, I know you can do that. Yeah, now's the rather arbitrary example, right? But if you, uh, actually now's a bad example because I think we dump now as whatever the current timestamp is every time you regenerate schema.rb. I was going to say, um, I
0: I think I looked into defaulting to now, like this was at least a year ago, so who knows? But I remember it being like, wait, why can't I just write, like what's happening?
1: Well, okay, but so for example, um, in Postgres specifically, the default value of your ID column is seek next value, whatever the sequence name is. Mm Mm-hmm users p key I think right and so that's a function that gets evaluated every single time a row gets inserted that
2: hmm.
1: We I mean we could go call the function if we wanted to but we, we don't so if your default value is five Then we'll give it to you on dot new But if your default value is any function then we don't
0: I like that distinction It'd be weird to say like <laughs> increase the sequence for this thing I just called new on and then like who knows how often you don't actually end up saving that. So you'd end up with like these weird gaps. gaps in your sequences, which is fine. It's not a problem, but it's weird to have a thing is like, let's take the database hit to get this ID right now. And then, yeah,
1: <laughs> it can also theoretically, if a trigger fails, the same thing can happen. If you weren't inside of a transaction, Yep. yep. actually, I I, even if you are inside of a transaction, I think that function is global and doesn't affect and doesn't, uh... I believe so as well. Yeah. Anyway. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is like, Cool, so I'm adding some more config options. Really, I'm only adding the one right now is the ability to specify like where we import more types from. But then I look at things like, uh, there's just a bunch of little changes that some of them I could see myself adding additional config options for, but as they get more and more specific, like for example, I would like to um, reference this column with a different name in Rust, which the most common reason would be because th- your column is a Rust keyword, but we already handled that specific case automatically. But, you know, for whatever reason, it, like you can just put uh, SQL name equals whatever above something, and then that will be the name that we use when we generate the SQL, but then you can have the Rust name be whatever you want. So that's one like, yeah, I could totally probably add a config option somewhere of like rename these columns, but then it's just as it gets more specific, what the the config option should be and what, like knowing what I want to do, it's not super obvious to me what I would want that config to look like. And then also whatever I come up with, I'm guessing if you just saw that config, it wouldn't be necessarily obvious what it does.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then there are just some things that like I don't even know how we would do a config for this. So because one of the things is we have to we have to say which tables can be joined between. And we auto-generate this for you, but only when it is when there's a foreign key present, and specifically the foreign key is um not between the same table twice, and also there can only be one foreign key linking the two tables. Huh. And you know, basically just all this other stuff that's like Otherwise, we just can't infer it. But you can still tell us manually. So, for example, in crates.io, there is one joinable that, that gets generated that we don't want. And then two that we want but don't get generated because there are multiple foreign keys. Or I think one case there is no foreign key because it's a polymorphic association. Yep. You know, And, and by, like in the case where there's two foreign keys, we just want to be able to say, no, but when I just say join between these two tables and I don't tell you how, use this one. So that's the sort of thing where it's just like, yeah, that's a thing that we do. Every time we regenerate schema, we make those changes, and that's not a thing I could ever think of how to do a config option for. So I'm thinking of as like a catch-all. We have a patch file. So you can just tell us, here's a patch file. Please apply it. <laughs> sure. Which I still like to figure out like when there's a merge conflict, what we do, because right now it'll just error because GNU patch will just say like, sorry, couldn't do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other problem is that Patch does not have any way to um, patch standard in. Like, it can totally read a patch file from standard in, but the thing that is being patched, it always wants it to be a file. Uh, there's no flag that's like, hey, instead of assuming that you're patching a file in place, instead, read from standard in, patch that, and then print the patch version of standard out is the thing that I want. And it does not have a way to do that. Huh. Which means then that I have to create a temp file, right. write the schema to a temp file. Specifically, it has to be a temp file with a name that, you know, exists on disk and isn't just like a random arbitrary file handle because i need to access it across multiple processes which just means that there are security concerns related to that and potentially the file can end up just getting cleaned by the system's temporary file cleaner while we're still in the middle of doing our work if there's ever a moment where there's no open handle which i believe there is a very brief instant that that happens so that kind of sucks mm-hmm the other option would be, I only have the patch file thing happen when we're writing to a file and not when you ran diesel print schema from the command line, but that seems just unfortunate that diesel print schema doesn't generate the thing that is in schema.RS.:
0: <laughs> That seems fair. yeah.
1: I guess I guess my question to you is like, what I wanted to get your opinion on is, does that like the patch file just in general, ignoring the technical complications of it, like is that we a weird? option i
0: wouldn't use it but i might appreciate it being there like i would just stick with whatever conventions make it possible for me to not care about that as much as possible but as as like an escape hatch when like it'd be like oh it'd be really nice if the print schema got this correct yeah and it would save me from having to do these three things then maybe i'd probably end up in a situation at some point where it'd be nice to know about that and nice to have that But I don't know that it justifies a a tremendous amount of effort if it's going to take a tremendous amount of effort or like any significant ongoing maintenance costs that it might incur or something like that. Yeah,
1: the maintenance cost, I mean, it wasn't hard to implement. It was a little weird to get the test passing because it turns out that patch replaces the file being patched. It does not open it, truncate it, and rewrite it. Mm -hmm. So, like, the file handle that I had to it, like, I still have a valid file descriptor and could read from it but it is no longer pointing at the file that is on disk that patch wrote and if I tried to actually if I actually try reopening that you know that file descriptor it'll then give you the error that the file was replaced and so I have to take the path and reopen that and that's specifically the case where like depending on what your system's temporary file clean like if you have a if your system cleans up temporary files as soon as all handles are closed that file will be gone before I get a chance to read it mm-hmm I actually don't know if there are any that do that. I know it's a thing that a lot of stuff calls out in documentation as a thing that somebody does somewhere. As far as I'm aware, most systems will not clean temporary files that have been recently accessed. Or you know, in the case of Mac, it just never cleans them. And Is that just, true? You know, yeah, it, it cleans them when you tell it to uh, remove temporary files.
0: Oh, maybe I should do that every now and then.
1: I mean, most the the temp file object, whatever, in most languages will delete the file when that object goes away. But uh, I know it's one of those like it's such a funky solution, but it's the only one I could think of that was just a really good like catch all for a, a file that like, gets automatically generated. Like if there's just one minor thing that's different between what uh, what Rails generates at schema.rb and what you want, your solution is basically right to monkey patch the schema dumper and write a generalized solution. For whatever thing that is wrong
0: Mm-hmm It's as if this will be in my talk
1: <laughs> Yeah So i am just it's nice to just be No you just write the thing That you want run diff Save that to a file and then That's all you have to do mm-hmm. Assuming you know what what you want And, and you assuming that
0: then, I guess also assuming that Nothing changes later that makes that Diff that patch not apply Cleanly
1: Right. And t- I mean, the main reason that that would ever happen is if we dramatically change the output.
0: I'm trying to think. I'm thinking about, like, recent changes to schema.rb. So, like, the biggest change recently was they no longer attempt to align all of the members of the of each line or whatever, all the parts oh, yeah, of each we line. Oh, never...
1: That'll never be it. Like, any significant changes that we, we would make will either be adding a new, you know, section of stuff mm-hmm. or removing a section of stuff that's no longer needed. Right.
0: What I decided definitely could depending on what you're patching. Like if you were patching something along one of those lines, then that's going to have problems.
1: Yeah, but I mean, we never try to visually align stuff. I
0: was so glad Uh that that, I was so happy with that change. Yes. Because like the value of that file is in the diff that it generates when something changes to me. Yep. Or one of the chief values there. And I talk, again, I talk about that and talk about how like, how do you know you got change right? Like, you know, you got change right when you run it up and then run it down and there's no diff. Right and when there's weird like formatting differences, you're like wait what, what happened here like
1: <laughs> No, and and there are certainly so there there are also some things that just the patch file will, will always fail Like if you're let's say, you know, you're renaming a column or something and you actually rename the table Yep, well actually depending on what you're renaming patch might still be able to follow it
0: Right, but even it if it just didn't, depends like even if it didn't like let's say like in that case It's fairly easy to be like oh this thing used that used to be users is now authors and that's why right. my patch isn't applying. Let me edit my patch.
1: Right? Well, and like... I would, yeah, and that's what I'd like to do is basically just have it be a merge conflict flow, mm-hmm. where like we literally just you know give you the same thing that Git merge would give you if that same conflict occurred, and it then give you, you, can you resolve the
0: it. same same thing with like you can do like the split edit, whatever. When you when you get oh, a merge... I've never
1: done any of that. I've never done any of that. I always just go open the file. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need to look into tooling around that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Never really spent much time using them. Yeah, you know, it seems like git probably uh it basically re-implements those tools itself rather than using them directly, but
0: yeah, why don't you just create like a mini git repository for all this information <laughs> and then let people use git tooling to generate and resolve all these things?
1: I actually was looking to see if there was a decent C library for this that didn't involve me specifically requ- uh, relying on GNU patch being installed on the system in question. Mm-hmm. And not really anything that would be easily usable. Okay, we might look into it eventually because I mean, it, you know, patch is pretty much a thing you can generally assume is going to be on on Unix machines, but certainly not on Windows. Mm-hmm. You can definitely install it on Windows, like they do. They do ship Windows binaries for it, but you know, we we'll, we would use the patch file in crates.io, so I'd just become un, it'd be unfortunate if anybody wants to contribute to that project on Windows, like no, can no longer just run migrations out of the box. Right. I don't know, but that's a thing. We released 1.2. I don't know if you saw. I saw that on Twitter.
0: Yeah, congratulations.
1: That was how I broke crates.io actually. I uh, learned during the release that crates.io was not allowing features with numbers at uh, as the first character, even though Cargo is completely fine with those. And so just because I was in the middle of the release, like half the crates had been updated and half of them hadn't, I just stuck an X in front of the feature names and was just like, I'll deprecate these once I fix it. And so I went and, f- uh, and fixed it, but my fix, the validation for features was calling a function called valid feature name, and uh, a feature that you reference is not necessarily the same as a thing that is a name of a feature, because a feature can also be a feature of another crate. So it could be like diesel slash postgres, which is a valid feature but not a valid feature name. So I renamed valid feature name to valid feature, which is what it was testing, and then added a new function valid feature name, which was the you know behavior that I wanted, and I accidentally left the validation for feature. Calling valid feature name, so then it suddenly started disallowing slashes in features, which turns out important. (laughs) Use,
0: oops, my bad. I broke my client's production server on Friday with a Friday deploy. So nice. (laughs) It had to do with forcing SSL. So like (laughs) this client was part of the reason why I finally made the change. Like I finally was like, I'm gonna open the PR to deprecate. This controller level force SSL because it gives people a false sense of like that they're doing something good. Uh, <laughs> and so then it came out that like there was this one endpoint that was serving as an integration between two systems that like when they had tried this in the past, HTTPS connections had failed. And I was like, well, I don't have access to this other system. So what I can do for now is just configure the middleware to ignore that one path, which. I thought I did in which we tested this integration with this other system on staging and it worked and we deployed and there were no like no errors logged or anything like that but then when we came in on Monday it was like hello there's been no data imported into the system since Friday (laughs) because no errors were being raised by the system that's doing the integration that's pushing data to us because the HTTP code it received in response was not 400 or 500 it was 301 Or 302 or whatever it is right right and so it's not an error it just doesn't follow the redirect either so (laughs) evidently my configuration for hey redirect this path was wrong i'm still not entirely sure how i just got so burned by it that i was like forget it i'm not going to revisit this until we can get this other system to talk over https with us and not have this configuration here yeah so that sucked the lesson is a deploying on friday sucks (laughs) yeah Which is something I hate admitting because I I really want to live in a world where you can deploy whenever you want. It's not a big deal. And I've always espoused that view. And then B, that this feature broke entirely in the way that they told me it would break was rather embarrassing for me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I can't believe this is exactly what they told me would happen. And it happened. Nice. So that sucked. Because I break production on occasion. It happens to the best of us. Yep. But... I was particularly displeased with how this went down.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, saw, we had um, a little bit of a retro on the crates.io one, too. We're going to have a bigger meeting on Friday. But, like, why did it happen? And the answer just being not enough people who could deploy were watching the GitHub repo. But that also shouldn't be our main, like, metric of when something goes wrong. It's part of the problem is we just don't have a lot of metrics on that site set up because we would have to build those ourselves. You know, there's no new Relic plugin for our bespoke Rust web framework. (laughs) Right. But even if we did have those sort of metrics set up, like I don't even know that this would have triggered, I'm wondering like what the alert we would have needed to have set up would be because from the endpoint's point of view, like this wasn't, you know, a bunch of 500s going out. It was just a bunch of crates that had invalid cargo.toml files trying to be uploaded, Mm -hmm. which like is a normal... Bad input
0: you but you would need like some sort of thresholding alert.
1: Yeah, probably just you know if the percentage of Crates getting uploaded that is rejected increases significantly we get alerted But then just figuring out the threshold to make sure that we don't have false positives or false negatives is Mm -hmm. Or at least that the number of false positives or false negatives is really low right will be difficult in the case that I was talking about I mentioned
0: it retro like hey, I screwed this up. as like a thing that went poorly And we kind of all were just like, okay, well, I mean, I guess the takeaway from that is don't do it again. And I was like, yeah, I don't really know how I would have prevented, like I could have done a better job testing it. So, okay, maybe, maybe that next time. But then like, as soon as we were talking about it, I was like, oh, we should have a thing that says like, hey, have we gotten any data in the last, like this application takes in a lot of data. So like, hey, how much data have we gotten in the last X hours would be a good thing probably to say like, what's going on if we haven't gotten data in this many hours. Yeah. I still would have felt bad because it would have been, it would have gone off over the weekend and I would have, and I wouldn't have been the one responding to it because. Weekend? Yeah, it's a weekend and I'm a consultant. So, you know, I would have ruined somebody's weekend, but maybe I ruined some clients weekends. I don't know. I feel bad. I feel badly.
1: I'm sure everything will be okay.
0: I'll make it up to them. (laughs) Anyway, podcast hosts, they're just like us. They break production too. (laughs) 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 All right. We should wrap up this show. Yes. And I'll see you on Monday, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you will.
0: Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 151.
1: As always, ratings, reviews, and iTunes are much appreciated. If
0: you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website.
1: Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn
0: your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.